We're going to talk in this next conference about the theological virtue of hope. Um, imagine that you lived in a city in which all of the inhabitants kept dying. The doctors were the best medical personnel in the world. They looked at all the different diseases that could be at work. They couldn't explain why everyone was getting sick. They were frustrated. There was no explanation. And then, someone went and consulted an old medical manual from the 17th or, let's say, 13th century. A medical manual from the 13th century. And he found the cause of the disease and the treatment for it. And it was actually relatively simple. But we just hadn't identified the disease or the treatment in the modern world. Okay? It's not a, it's a metaphor. So metaphors break down. But this is what I'm suggesting is the most important modern spiritual disease that is undiagnosed, that cannot rightly be fully understood or treated without the 13th century remedy. And that's despair. We live in a world today that is actually quite plagued by despair. All kinds of subtle forms of it. Some not so subtle forms of it. There's a lot of despair in our world. I'm not going to document all the evidences. Maybe I will give some examples. But the remedy is hope. So I want to talk about the theological virtue of hope. What is it to become a person who chooses regularly to hope in God and in the means of God's salvation? If you don't do that, chances are the disease has made its way into your soul. You see the dentist. They say you have plaque. You have to floss. That's like, they're always scolding you at the dentist. The things you haven't done to take care of your teeth. And you have residues growing. It's not a very pretty metaphor. But think about your soul as having plaque, sclerosis of despair. And how do you drive it out? Through hope. Now, when Aquinas asks what hope is and where it is, is it in the mind, primarily the intellect, or is it in the will? He puts hope in the will. Hope is an act of the will, and it's based on love. What is hope? Hope is a desire for a difficult or arduous good that we love and wish to possess. So hope is not like, you know, if I say to you, do you want a cup of coffee at the break? You say, I really hope, I really hope to eventually get a cup of coffee. I really want to get a cup of coffee. It's okay. It's, there's an urn in the back of the room. You can have a cup of coffee. I mean, it would be a misuse of the language. Now, if I say to you, what are you doing with your professional life? I say, well, I'm studying at the University of South Carolina University Medical School, and I'm hoping to become an anesthesiologist. It's a nine-year formation program. Okay, that makes sense as like using the language of hope. It's an arduous process. It requires a lot of you know, formidable study and perseverance and ambition. Or, you know, I'm 
hoping to retire at age 62. Difficult goods. Okay. Hope is about, in the natural order, wanting and desiring things that could be a little difficult to get. Striving for the difficult good. And hope is typically human. You don't find spiritual hope in animals, other animals. You don't. You could say that you're, there's a kind of animal emotional hope of your dog when he gets home that he wants you to feed him. He starts going crazy because, you know, he hears the car come in and he knows it's time to get fed or he's going to get affection. That's a kind of passion of hope, an emotional passion of hope. Aquinas analyzes that. There is emotional hope in animals, but there's not spiritually reflective hope. Like your dog is hoping to become a veterinarian so it can solve its own medical problems. <laughs> and angels don't hope either in the way we do because they don't exist in body. I mean, the whole thing about an angel is an angel is an incorporeal spirit having intellect and will, but not embodied. One thing about having a body means you live in time. Time has to do with material change. We inhabit a vast, complicated material cosmos. So our little spirits... Our poor, our poor little spiritual souls have to learn about the world through our animal senses. We're spiritual animals. So we're like living through a material existence patiently, having to put up with illness, sickness, death, uh, inconvenience, circumstances we didn't invent, and lots of great things that happen to us in the physical world too. Football games, uh, you know, Christmas festivals, just plenty of natural human good things we enjoy. But we also have to live through time and the spirit is tested. And so we have to persevere and be patient. Do you hope to receive eternal life? Do you hope to die with the sacraments? Do you hope to like make progress in avoiding sin? Do you hope to grow in holiness? Animals, other animals don't worry about this stuff, and neither do angels, because angels don't live in time, and animals don't have spiritual life of intellect and will. We live in time and are Therefore, people have to give this very complicated life of spiritual animals. We have to live with patience. We have to make many acts of virtue. We have to persevere and be patient. We have to be moral. We have to relate God over time for the duration of a lifetime. And so we have to practice hope. Hope especially breeds in the soul fortitude, patience, and perseverance. A person who's like, think about your person studying to be an anesthesiologist. They have to get up every day. They have to study organic chemistry. They have to go to class. They have to do many studies. They have to be a super responsible person indefinitely for a long time. And then afterwards, they get after they practice more so or else people will perish on the operating room table. Right? It's a life of perseverance, patience, and fortitude. Now, it's not just that, but it does require all of that. And that is true, too, in our spiritual life. Like if you, That's why the sacraments help us. Daily Mass, at least weekly Mass, regular confession, praying the rosary, having a deep relationship with God through acts of discipline, happy discipline. It's better to have happy discipline than to not have discipline and live a life that becomes unhappy. But that requires hope. Now, Aquinas talks also about hope in a very basic, helpful way in the Theological Compendium, and I've given you a couple of paragraphs from that on your handout. Do you have, you have the second page? Okay. We naturally desire to know truth. 
So when he talks about what are we desiring, we desire truth. When we naturally desire to know truth and when we come to know it, our craving in this direction is satisfied. But in the knowledge of faith, man's desire never comes to rest. That's terrible. Did you hear? He, Aquinas is a very discreet soul. He's not melodramatic. But sometimes he just, in a most gentle way, puts a knife right through your heart. If you're listening carefully. He says to you, once you receive supernatural faith in God, your desires in this world will never rest. You will have a totally unfulfilled desire for the duration of your life. Because what do you desire? Union with God. And union with God is never perfectly effectuated in this life. You only have anticipations of it in the obscurity of faith. You never have the fullness of consummation. So, you have faith. Congratulations. You're going to live a life of pure spiritual restlessness forever. Well, yeah, okay. There is some rest in God in the spiritual life. But he's also talking about a healthy, a good restlessness. It saves us from mediocrity. Our desires get expanded. Why do you live? I live to play Xbox. That's too low. It's too low a good. I live to play golf. I, my, my parents live near Hilton Head, and I know golf is a very great good. And I'm sure many of you are experts, but you cannot make it the meaning of your life. I've seen people try. In fact, I live around people who try. Doesn't, and of course, some Catholic priests are sort of angling for that, too. Golf is not the meaning of life. But you could say, well, my family, my family is the meaning of my life. That's a very great good. But actually, we have a God-centered heart that is not fully satisfied except in God. And so faith stimulates our desires to want more. Okay, I continue. For faith is imperfect knowledge. The truths we accept on faith are not seen. This is why the apostle calls faith the evidence of things that appear not in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Accordingly, even when we have faith, there still remains in the soul an impulse towards something else, namely the perfect vision of the truth assented to on faith and the attainment of whatever can lead to such truth. What do you really ultimately hope for in the Christian life? I want to have faith so that I win the lottery. I want to have faith so that I'm free from sickness and never get cancer. I want to have faith so that I know I never have to struggle or suffer pain in this life. I want to have faith that all my human relationships work out well and perfectly. Well, you might get some of those things, but you're not guaranteed it. You have faith so that you can one day see God face to face. That's what faith is for. It's for that union of the soul of God where we see God face to face in what the theologians call and the church calls in her catechesis the beatific vision. Beatific just means happy, blessed. The vision of God's essence that makes us happy and blessed. If you ask Teresa of Avila, the great Carmelite saint in the 16th century, what she aspires to by her prayer life in Carmel, she says, I want to see God. Why is she in the Carmel? Why, she's the sisters, why are we here in the Carmel praying every day, growing in union with God, seeking mystical love? Because one day we want to see God face to face. That is a high aspiration. That's better than being an anesthesiologist. I want one day to see God face to face. 
That's the gift that grace gives each of us. The grace to aspire to see God. And when she was dying, Teresa of Avila said to the sisters, she was praying to God in front of the sisters, she said, Lord, it is time that we should meet. Having lived a life in the faith, she said, Lord, it is time that we should meet. She received many high mystical graces. I mean, God gave her elocutions. She details all this in vivid, gritty realism in her autobiography. You can, if you want to read about somebody receiving kind of miraculous visions, talking to you about it in a very gritty, realistic way. It's kind of super believable and seemingly totally realistic. Read treats about this autobiography. But despite all the visions and things that happened to her, at the end of her life, she says to the Lord, Lord, this time we should be. She wants to see God face to face. And that's what the hope of the Christian life is at its essence. Now, hope is difficult for everyone. It's difficult for the intelligence. Why is that? Well, the end promised is not so bad. I mean, if you tell me I can see God face to face, normally an intellectual person will say, if that's possible, that's not so bad. It sounds, you might say it sounds too good to be true. It's not clear that it's too good to be true. I mean, if God exists, why wouldn't he want us to know him immediately? If you were God, wouldn't you want your creatures to know you? Why would you create intellectual creatures of knowledge and love and not want us to know him? God is the most intellectual of all. He gave us all intellects. He gave us minds so we could know him. So it makes sense that we want to know him. The problem is the means. You've got the ends and the means. So go back to your anesthesiologist. It's a glorious thing to take care of people medically and allow a miracle, well, not really a miracle, but a natural, scientific, technological miracle, in quotes, of surgery to heal many people. But you have to go through all the means to get there. Organic chemistry one, organic chemistry two, residency, interns, internship, residency, all that stuff. The Christian life is also, it's too strong to say an obstacle course, because there are consolations. But I mean, it's also an endurance. The Germans, the Teutonic people, who are a little more melancholic, as some of those modern Catholic philosophers in Germany wrote, wrote about withstanding human existence. Said so, it's like kind of melancholic. What are you doing with your life? I'm withstanding human existence. <laughs> You can't say that in America. No one ever said that on Oprah. On Oprah, you would be happy. How are we doing? Just do it in But we withstand human existence sometimes, and so our hope can be tested. If you don't admit that, then when it comes, you're anemic. You fall right into despair. And actually, American culture produces lots of very uh, poignant despair in people. Because it's a culture that pr promises immediate beatitude, immediate happiness. You push a button on Amazon, two days later, whatever you ordered is there. I just ordered a happy life. It's coming in two days. <laughs> Every millennial I meet, you know, they can push fa Facebook. You can push some, you know, you, know you, can, you can immediately see how your high school friends are doing. You can Google things and find out instantly. You can order things immediately on Amazon. You can go to a restaurant and get whatever you want. You can choose whatever restaurant you want to eat at in our new cities with all our restaurant culture. Or you can, you know, go to a fast food place and have something in two minutes that's inexpensive. It's a life of immediate satisfaction in some domains. But you can't order up a successful relationship 
are a meaningful job, you certainly can't order up a successful spiritual life. And you can't order up an easy answer to cancer or mortality or tragedy. But that is our condition. Our condition is that we are perishable, that we are mortal, that we are subject to human evil, selfishness, egoism, deep moral fragility. And it's in all of us. Effects of consequences of original sin, mediocrity. And so hope has to be tested by seeking God in and through all those, that sort of, you know, huge field of things, that terrain of challenges, seeking God in through whatever the means you're given. So Aquinas says hope is the desire, theological hope, the desire to see God face to face, but also the hope to make use of every human trial or blessing in view of union with God. So, if you get a job in Greenville, South Carolina, and you discover that there's a fantastic parish there that has a beautiful liturgy and Eucharistic adoration and an excellent school, that can be a great means. It's a great blessing. It's a, it's a means towards union with God, and you should take advantage of it. And then in five years later, you're diagnosed with liver cancer, you're going to die in the next six months. That's also a means to union with God. And it's extremely difficult. And you have to try to take it as a means to union with God. It's not a good thing. It's something you could say something God is merely permitted, not necessarily something God's will, but God does will you to make use of everything to grow in union with Him. And that's hard. That's the trials of this life we withstand. Often, not so well. But hope is not really just about being strong. It's about living the mystery of the cross. It's about learning your own fragility and weakness, and it's about growing in the middle of that trial in faith in God and in hope in God. And Joseph is a great instruction for us. Now, we see Joseph's story depicted in Matthew. There are two traditions about Joseph in the early church. How did he meet the Lord's there? Does the Eastern tradition the Western the Eastern tradition is that he was an older man with children from a previous marriage. This goes back to the proto-evangelium of James in the second century. And that the Virgin Mary, as a young woman, explained to Joseph, who had offended her, her desire to consecrate herself to God in holy virginity, and that Joseph became her custodian, her guardian, and took legal um, care of her by becoming her fiancé and you know, he's going to marry her, but is respectful of her consecration to God, and then finds out that she's a child, and is tried by that, and then receives the vision that the child comes from God. The other story, the other tradition, is most especially articulated by Jerome in the Western tradition, it's one we're more used to in our iconography. Joseph was a young man. And that he met the Virgin, he met the Virgin Mary and fell in love with her. And that she explained her consecration to God to him. And 
he decided to accompany her in that consecration to God by giving his life to God also in holy virginity and became her custodian and protector. And then his trial came upon him when he discovered she was with child. Now the second story is also crazy. I mean, as a priest, you accompany people who are thinking about a religious vocation. And you see things like this happen, actually. You have the young man who's dating the young woman, and she's thinking about marrying him, but, or maybe she's thinking about marriage in general, including marriage to him. She's also been haunted by the idea of a religious vocation. And over time, through prayer and discernment, she decides to actually become a religious. And he's left with, he discovers this side of her. He discovers a religious life through her. And then, he discovers he has the vocation to be There are many real cases of this. So we do have the case where one person's consecration becomes contagious. Where one person's absolute vision of themselves to God and holy virginity awakens the other person a sense of responsibility for them. Now I'm sure many of these young women who consecrate themselves to God are very holy in this cult give a good example to the young man in question. But none of them is the Virgin Mary. Now, if you were around the Virgin Mary, you might get the idea of consecrating yourself to God. So this is Jerome's idea of what happens to Joseph. He's around a very, 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 very holy person. You know, they said of Catherine Siena, I mean, most of the, she, she befriended scoundrels. She was friends with many of these like young Italian lads who were scoundrels. And they all ended up becoming hermits or saints. You know, and the thing is, she just, she had a vibrancy about her. Like, they felt the Holy Spirit was so alive, so at work in her, it was contagious. So just think about that at a higher echelon. That's what we're arguing if you follow the Jerome line. Which I'm favorable to. But if we continue on, the trial is multifold, is multiple for Joseph. First, he encounters the Virgin of Nazareth, and when he thinks perhaps he's going to marry, he now finds himself in this new state of life that's peculiar. Then he finds she's a child. Why didn't she tell him? I mean, if you, if you put Luke and Matthew together and you think they somehow come here, why doesn't she and why is it you know, Gabriel answers to her, Mary answers to Joseph? That seems, seems sensible enough. But you know, it's such a miracle that you can only come to know it through grace. And the Virgin Mary may well have intuited she's a very brilliant person in very high faith. You can't communicate these things to other people unless they're revealed. It's by grace that you can understand this. So she prays. And it is revealed to, to Joseph eventually. Miraculously. And Joseph becomes the contemplative father of Christ, the custodian of Christ. Misunderstood by people around him. Subject to confusion that can never be resolved or explained before the time of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Once Christ is raised from the dead, the virtual conception of Jesus makes a lot of sense. People understand he's the son of God, that there's a mystery of God having become human. But prior to the resurrection, and Joseph didn't live through all that, 
you're living it a mystery of obscurity. And almost, you know, if you put the if you date the Herod Herod's attempt to kill the children in Bethlehem, it's about two years after. It seems he kills everyone under two years old. The Magi don't come immediately. They come probably within two years of the birth of Christ. They flee into Egypt. <laughs> this is these joyous mysteries start looking pretty fragile quickly into the thing. Yeah? Born in a stable, no room in the inn or in a cave. That's the other tradition. Born in a cave or stable in Bethlehem. Having to flee into Egypt. Joseph lives a life that is mysteriously draped in spiritual poverty. He's not a normal human father. He doesn't have a normal human honor. He doesn't have a normal stable place to live. He has to flee into Egypt, which is a land of pagans. And Joseph died before the public life of Jesus. There's no vindication. There's no time of public recognition. Oh, you were the you were the foster father of the Lord. You made admirable sacrifices. You did great things for God. He died in obscurity. He dies in a way, in a way that everything he gave is unrecognized, except by two. Two very significant people, as it turns out. But unrecognized by the world. Obscure self-gift. That was the means that God chose for Joseph for union with God. Obscure self-gift. In the dark night of faith, in the poverty of hope, to find God, to be united with God through those means. Joseph is draped in spiritual poverty. The poor carpenter from Nazareth. The son, of the father, foster father of the poor carpenter from Nazareth. God entered this world in holy poverty. This is deeply related to hope. Why was Christ poor? Why was Christ born of a poor family? Why was Christ poor? Why does Christ require of his apostles to become poor? Because when you don't have things, you don't have means. You don't have the means to arrive at things. None of the apostles had the money to enroll in classes of anesthesia. Or Roman senators. Or Greek philosophers. They were little people. They were poor people. And there's a lot of wisdom in what God was doing. One thing that's obvious is he's giving the revelation to people who are poor so we don't communicate from their ingenuity. The Gospels are magnificent, profound books about God. They were recounted by very simple fishermen and agricultural groundsmen. So, God is giving wisdom to the poor, showing us that it comes from God, not from our human ingenuity. Great, we get the message. It's like their deaths, they died, lives already execution, torture, to show us they believe in revelation. Their poverty is a recognition of the truth. But it's also because the gospel is teaching us that what you have by your natural means can't get you to where you need to go. And not having the natural things is not an impediment. 
You can be poor. You know what? Sure. When it comes to getting eternal life, we're all poor. We don't have the means. That's okay. Because God is going to give the means. And he can use everything. Because he's not. He used all the trials of Joseph's life to make him a man of humility, patience, and perseverance. Joseph is the patron saint of patience. St. Joseph is the patron saint of patience. When you want to grow in patience, pray to St. Joseph to pray to God for you to grow in holy patience. Patience, perseverance. He's a patron of good death. We pray to St. Joseph, we ask St. Joseph to pray for us that we may have a holy and good death. Death of patience and perseverance and faith in Christ. But he also shows us that you you don't need anything else as long as you have Jesus and Mary. He had nothing but Jesus and Mary, so he had everything he needed. And that's salutary for us, because ordering your life on Amazon in two days is not going to solve the big problems. I work in Washington, D.C., in downtown urban Washington, D.C., well, two miles from the capital, four miles from I see a lot of professionals, young professionals. What is the most common spiritual ailment? Despair. Why? Well, the economy wasn't very good for a long time. They can't get the jobs that they would hope to based on the education they had. Dating, well, that doesn't exist anymore. So Catholics try to date a little bit. Dating and getting married is challenging. Maybe even South Carolina people still date and marry, but maybe not. Not so much in not so much in Europe, it's a just our country. But getting married and having children is a pretty important good. So people are having trouble getting that. Their spiritual life, they've been taught that everything has an instant solution. The church teaches you your spiritual life is something that you work on. So they have to be taught to make acts of hope. I often tell people to make seven acts of hope a day. Short acts of hope, 30 seconds. Get on your knees. After you get up in the morning, tell Christ, I hope in you. I will deliver this day with all that you send me, what is good, what is challenging, what is boring. To use everything as an opportunity to grow closer to you, God. Closer to you, Christ. In and through this day, I hope in you. Give me the grace to abandon myself to your divine providence this day in all things that and you do that seven times a day, why seven times a day? Because then you really have a habit of hope, you're fighting. But the, the hopeful person is a boxer. They fight. The devil comes and pushes on you, say, despair, despair, despair. And the hopeful person punches back, I hope in God. I hope in God. If the boxer takes hits, and the Christian takes hits in this world, temptations, despair, we live in, in weakness, frailty. And threat to hope. But we fight back with hope in the power of God. Not only in the end, promise that we can even survive and withstand and triumph by the grace of Christ, in and through all means. And if not triumph, persevere, be patient, and give our life to God. After the model of St. Joseph is a patron of the order of patience and perseverance and hope. And if we do that, if we learn that, you might say, it's a little bit metaphorical, that art of hopefulness, 
we become a person who can also help our fellow human beings, who have the most technologically advanced society in the history of the world, but often don't have a lot of hope, deep spiritual hope, in, in when they meet with the, deal, the real deep trials of this life. Because the real answers are supernatural. The cross is the ultimate paradox of seeming defeat and of massive hopefulness. The worst possible thing that could happen. The human race didn't recognize our visitation and we put to death our Savior. We took the life of the Lord. Julian of Norwich says, basically to paraphrase her, the worst possible thing that could have happened happened. We killed God. And the best possible thing that could happen as a result came about. The resurrection, eternal life, and the offer of salvation to all. So we have the ultimate means of salvation in what seems like the darkest night of despair. The cross seems like the victory of death, sin, and the devil, and it's the ultimate argument. It's the ultimate means of salvation and hope. And it's poor. The cross is poor. God became poor so that we might be enriched, as St. Paul says. He took on the most difficult of our human, difficult dimensions of our human existence, so that even in those most difficult, dark nights of our human existence, we could have a means to be united with God and hope. And Joseph's life anticipates the mystery of the in his spiritual poverty, in the hiddenness of God's designs, but also in his patience and perseverance, pointing us towards salvation. Okay, I'm going to finish there, and I'll open the floor for questions for a minute.